Now, Judges comes right after Moses and Joshua, two of the big names of the Old Testament. In Exodus, God used Moses in a mighty way to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. And uh, I believe there was a movie that came out about that. I haven't watched it, but uh, a Hollywood movie about that. So so it was a a big event there. And after a long time, they eventually ended up on the border of the promised land. But then in the, the book of Joshua, God uses Joshua. So Moses has passed away. Joshua is now in charge and is the one that's leading the Israelites. And so they begin conquering the territories of uh, the the promised land to to take it over. And by the end of the book, they haven't done everything, but they've made a lot of progress. And so near the end of Joshua's life, Joshua stands before the people and basically has one of those what we might call a come to Jesus moment, even though Jesus hadn't come at that moment yet. But he says to them in the well-known passage in Joshua 24, 15, he says this, Choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so the people respond back. They're all excited. They're like, yeah, yeah, we're going to serve the Lord also. Give the three cheers for God. I'm, I'm guessing they probably did that. Joshua responds to them by basically saying, come on, are you sure? Because if you turn away from God, bad things are going to happen to you. When you're away from God, life is not going to go well for you. And they respond by saying, God's our number one. Paraphrasing this. And then Joshua dies. And so that is the end of the book of Joshua. And so then we get to Judges, the book of Judges. And this is, uh, we went from a showing promise, making progress. And Judges is is about a downward spiral of the nation of Israel. In Joshua, they were doing so well, not perfectly, they, had, they, they made mistakes, but they were doing so well. But by the end of Judges, they are in big, big trouble. And so this raises the question, what went wrong? What went wrong between the start of Judges and the end of Judges that caused them to go into great trouble, from great promise to great trouble? And that's what we're going to begin exploring today, or that's what I'm going to look at today. We, if, if you want to see what happens with the rest of Joshua, I, I preached through the book uh, about three years ago. So you can look that up and uh, really enjoyed preaching through it. It's a really interesting book. But today we'll be looking at just chapter one. And so the title of today's message is One Way to Fail Spiritually. And I'm not going to leave you in suspense here. So here's the main idea of today's message. The one way that we, uh, that, that they failed spiritually and that we can potentially fail spiritually is this. We fail spiritually when we only follow God half-heartedly. Half-heartedly. And so let's go ahead and let's read the first couple of verses uh, uh, starting in chapter 1. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? 
And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hands. Let's stop there. Notice what God tells them. He says, number one, Judah is supposed to go. And then number two, what did he say? I have given them into your hands. Hindsight is twenty twenty, right? But does that seem clear enough to them? Does, is that fairly clear? And I would say the answer is yes. But let's see what they do instead. This is like one of those games. See what's different here. Verse 3. And Judah said to Simeon his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go up with you into the territory allotted to you. And so Simeon went with him, and then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into, the, into their hand. And they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. And so, did you notice the difference here? Instead of just Judah going up, Judah decides that they need a little bit of help. And so they ask their fellow tribe, Simeon, hey, come, come and help us out. And had God told Simeon to go? No, no. He was very clear. Judah, you go and I will defeat them for you. But uh, so, so here's the first consequence that I want you to see from following God half-heartedly. That following God half-heartedly leads to listening to some of God's words, but not all of them. So they went, and they fought, but they didn't do exactly what God commanded. And so you may be thinking, though, Kyle, aren't you being a little bit picky here? I mean, they, they, they teamed up, and they won, and I would say and, and challenge that by saying they won in spite of their disobedience, not because, uh, not because of it. And so here's what I want you to see about this. Will disobedience lead to immediate trouble? So d- did they get into trouble right at that moment? And the answer is no. No, they, they won the battle. They were doing okay, but disobedience sets us on a path for consequences. It sets us on a path for trouble so that eventually something bad is going to happen when we continuously disobey God. Many of you likely remember the poor uh, submersible Titan that went down to try to visit the, t- uh, the, the Titanic uh, back in June, I believe, it, when, it, when it was. And so it went missing, and then they later found pieces of it on the bottom of the ocean floor. And so a couple weeks ago, maybe about two weeks ago, I came across a little documentary online on YouTube about what what they believe happened to the submersible and why it just disappeared like that and, and went down. And the problem was, is that part of the hull, part of the hull there is, is, of the submersible is made out of carbon fiber. And each time that the carbon fiber goes into deep water, that extreme pressure essentially causes these microscopic cracks in the carbon fiber. And so this accumulates every time it went down. 
And so the, the time that this, in June, that they went missing was the fifth time that this submersible had gone down into the deep waters. So they had already experienced four other times of extreme pressure with those micro cracks forming. And so the first trip didn't cause it to implode, nor did the second or the third or the fourth. But at number five, those carbon fibers or whatever that, you know, that, that hole there could not stand the pressure any longer. And that's when disaster happened. Another example here is this game of Jenga. How many of you like playing Jenga? Only a few of you, okay? Frustrates me as well. But let's think about this. When, when is the tower here least likely to fall? I would say it's most least likely to fall when you're not touching it and when it's totally just uh, all together like this. When no pieces have been pulled out. But the more pieces that you pull out, let me see if I can do this here. All right, this is my record best right now. (laughs) The more pieces that you pull out, the more at risk that it is of eventually falling down. I read that the Guinness Book of World Record is is 40, 40 stacks up there. That was not me, in case you were wondering here. Let me see if I can find another piece. Hmm. Now, I'm, I might be pushing my luck here. All right, there we go. Um, but listen, all of our spiritual lives are sort of like a Jenga game in a way. And the stability of our towers here is very dependent upon how many pieces that we keep in. Oh, I'll take that one there. How many pieces that we take, keep in. And so that, that means how much we obey God. When, when we're obeying God, everything's stable. But every time that we disobey God, what we're doing is we're taking out little pieces and just building them up higher and higher. But if you notice, I've taken out five different pieces so far, and what's happened to it? Nothing! It's doing really well right now. And so sometimes we, we start taking out the pieces of our lives. We, we sin in different ways. We disobey God in different ways. And we're doing, we're think, we think we're doing pretty well. But eventually, it leads to consequences. And one day, if you continue in your disobedience, oh, I'm going to do one more here. One day, if you continue in your disobedience, your life or your job or your kids or your wife or your finance or your husband, something is going to end up paying for your disobedience there. Like that. And that's what happens when you follow God a little, but not completely. It's a path to spiritual failure. Now let's go ahead and let's skip to verse 17. And let's take a little, uh, another look at another part of their conquest. And so the other tribes head out to claim their areas. And then in verse 17... And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephyr and devoted it to destruction. Verse skipping into verse 19. And the Lord was with Judah and he took possession of the hill country 
But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. So since the Simeonites helped Judah, Judah went and helped Simeon. And again, they had success. And so the the passage even says that God was with them. And so everything's looking pretty good until we get to the end of verse 19. Did you catch that? In the midst of the success that they had, it says they could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Dun, dun, dun. And you know the old saying, when the going gets tough, you just give up. Is that what it says? No, what is it? it says, uh, when the going gets tough, you keep going. But apparently, that's what the Israelites decided to do instead. When the going gets tough, let's just give up. Now, I'm going to admit, if I was facing an iron chariot, I would be scared. So, so I'm not saying that they weren't brave. Or that they were scaredy cats. That they were chickens. Uh, a modern day equivalent of the, uh, of the chariot might be like a tank. And, and none of us from our human perspective wants to go up against a tank, do we? So it seems reasonable that they are scared. But the problem is not really the, the chariots. The problem was not the scary chariots. The problem was their lack of faith in God. And this leads to the second problem that we face when we follow God half-heartedly. And that is that following God half-heartedly results in half-hearted faith. Half-hearted faith. God, let's remember the, the people that we're talking about, the Israelites. God had done all sorts of miracles in front of Israel. He had brought them out of the the land of Egypt and he had decimated the Egyptians with plagues, decimating the gods of the Egyptians, showing that God was the most powerful one. And then when they get to the sea that they couldn't cross and they were scared because they were being chased by the Egyptians, what did God do? God just said, bloop! And he opened the sea for them, and they walked right through. And then they're in the the desert, and they're hungry, and they're complaining. And what does God do? Water comes pouring out, and food comes dropping from the sky. I was thinking, if you were hungry one day, you're like, oh, I'm so hungry. And then you walk outside, and there's a Big Mac wrapped on the floor for you. Right on the grass. And then the fries land over here. I mean, God had shown that he was strong enough to defeat chariots. And so Israel had heard about them. This was the next generation. But they had heard about all these things. They had seen cities literally fall apart because they stained the God. And yet... Here they were, looking at chariots. And they said, oh, I'm scared. And so the problem was not the chariots were too tough. 
but that they did not have enough faith in God about the chariots. They feared the chariots more than they trusted God. And sadly, it's not just the tribe of Judah and Simeon that do this. Almost all of them have similar problems. Let me go through a few of these in chapter 1. Verse 21. The people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. And so instead, they just, start, they just decided to start living with them. Verse 27. Manasseh did not drive out a bunch of the uh, folks in this area. And so uh, why is that? Verse 27. For the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in the land. And when Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. So those pesky Canaanites just would not give up. And so the Israelites decided, if you can't beat them, join them. And that's exactly what they did. So they let them live among them and help them out. But is that what God told them to do? No. Verse 29, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of the Canaanites, so the Canaanites lived among them, but became subject to forced labor. Verse 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of the Asherites. Uh, So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. And this continues on in verse 33 with Nephtali and verse 34 with Dan. I want to read you what one pastor said about this chapter. It said, and I believe this is uh, Tim Keller, says, taken on its own terms. Uh, Chapter one reads like a collection of, of Israel's press releases about the campaign. It's their spin on why they weren't as successful as we and God might have expected. As we read, we're lulled into sympathy with the Israelites. When we're told that they could not drive out the Canaanites, we're inclined to to agree they did their best. But here's the thing. God isn't asking us for our best. He's asking us in faith to let him work through us. And another pastor said this um, in, in a, a sermon that he gave on this passage. This is uh, J.D. Greer. Israel said, but God, we can't drive them out. We tried. And God says, actually, it's not that you can't. It's that you won't. It has nothing to do with you not being strong enough. And it, has, uh, and it has to do with you not being confident enough in God's grace. So here's the question. You should ask yourself, where are you saying, I can't, but God says, actually, you won't drive them out. You need to look at your life like the unconquered land of Canaan, lurking in every crevice of your heart. Are you, uh, of your heart, are your own little Canaanites of unbelief and sin? Where are you saying, I can't, when God would say, you won't? And I want to ask that question to each of us. 
where are your won'ts? And I spent a lot of time Googling how to properly put those in quotes with all the different things I added there. But that was as correct as I could get. But where are your won'ts? In what area of your life are you not living by faith? What areas might you be compromising in? And so here's a, a couple of areas that I came up with and that I, that I read about that, that I think are things that we can think about as well. So where are you compromising? Are you compromising in your devotional life? Where you might be saying, God, I, I just don't understand the Bible. So I'm just not going to read it. God, I, I don't have enough time. I'm so busy. I hear my kids say that sometimes. Why didn't you clean your room? I'm too busy. Well, I've, I've seen your schedule. You're not actually all that busy. But God would say in response, in God's word, it says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light unto my path. And so when you give up on reading the Bible, it's not, just because you, you, quote, can't understand it, what you're really saying is, I won't. Another area, areas of sin. Areas of sin. And this is broad. We'll be narrowing in on a few of these in a moment. But any area of sin where you're saying, I, I, I just can't stop doing this. It's too hard to conquer, God. I've tried ten times. I've tried a hundred times. I've tried a thousand times. And I just can't. So I'm just going to let it live with me. But God's word says that he will provide a way out from temptation. So what you're really saying is, I won't. What about with bitterness or forgiveness? God, I could never forgive that person. But what does God say in multiple places around the Bible? Forgive. Forgive. So what you're really saying is, I won't. Another area is looking more in the area of what God's causing, calling you to do, areas of faith. Maybe he's calling you to go somewhere, to do something. And, and, and you're like, God, I, I know I would have a bigger influence in this area for your kingdom. But I couldn't take that smaller salary. And so I can't. Or how about, God, I, I know that you tell me to wait for the right guy, but I don't see any around. And so I'm just going to settle for this ungodly guy over here. That's an I can't. But what you're really saying is I won't. I won't. Another one more example here in the area of generosity. God, I don't have enough money to give to the church. I can barely pay my own bills. But we know that we're told to give generously, not, not just to the church, but we're told to give generously, to, to not let money take hold of us. And so when you say, I can't, what you're really saying is, I won't. So you probably get the point here now. The danger is that every I won't leads you down the path of compromise. It takes one more of these and makes it fall. 
and one more and one more. And listen, church, that is a recipe for spiritual failure. Let's look at one more section here. In chapter 2, the angel appears before them and says this, But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you've done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall become a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. So again, one I won't, one compromise may not lead to much. A hundred compromises may not change things, but eventually, eventually they accumulate and there's big trouble. And as we can see, that's exactly what happened to Israel. Compromise after compromise eventually led to disaster. And God had to send an angel to tell them that their disobedience had led them right into trouble. And, and listen, it, it wasn't even as if God was like, oh, you're not listening to me? I'm going to punish you. And he certainly had the, the right to do that. But it's simply they're bringing the trouble right on themselves. A while back, I remember watching a video of uh, a little kid in an ape cage at a zoo. Do you, any of you remember seeing a video like that? Now, how did that kid end up with an ape in their enclosure? At some point, I don't remember exactly what happened, but at some point they must have gone over the guardrail. And at some point, the more we compromise, what we're doing is we're getting closer to that guardrail and closer, and then we're eventually saying, eh, I want to see the big scary ape. And then you jump in. So church, again, we must see that continued compromise leads to spiritual failure. And we must not allow that into our lives if we want to thrive spiritually. Uh, This is a picture of a water filter. Not mine, but I, I was too lazy last night to go down and get a picture of it. So I found one on the internet here, but it's very similar. And a while back, I went to go change the water filter in our house. And to do that, you had to, uh, you had to close the, the little um, shutoff valves before the water filter and, and after it. And ours didn't have a, a little bypass. It was, so once you shut off the water to the water filter, the, there's no water in the house. So we shut off both, I, I shut off both of them. And then I went ahead and I changed the filter. But I was in a hurry, so I went and I put the, the filter back on, closed it back up, and then I was trained that you're supposed to just slowly open the, 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 the water back up, just turn it on a little bit, and then you just push the little pressure valve on the top of the water filter, and that lets the air out and the water in so that the, your kids don't think there's any scary monsters in the pipes when they, you know, when they flush the toilet or something. And so... I was in a rush, and so after I filled it up, 
I ran off and I started exercising. You may have noticed, if you're paying attention here, that I missed a step. I didn't open it all the way. And so for the next three days, my wife and my kids and I are complaining, what is wrong with the water pressure in our house? It was so low that we could barely get it to go into shower mode. And so there, you know, it's sort of dripping down. You're trying to get the soap out of your hair. And and it got to the point where I I said, I I need to call a plumber to figure out what's going on. And so before I called the plumber, I decided I'd go downstairs and just take a look. And I went down and I took a quick look and I immediately knew what the problem was. I had to take those shutoff valves that had been opened just a little bit and I had to open it all the way. And so the pressure problem was because I had not opened it back up. And that is one of the consequences of half-heartedly following God. You see, compromise leads to sin, which then restricts our intimacy with God. It makes it harder to have intimacy with God. And this is what happened with the Israelites here. As their sin increased, it restricted their relationship with God in the sense of their intimacy with him, which then led to disaster. We all know what happens when we get clogged arteries. The blood flow is restricted, which leads to all sorts of problems. Less oxygen gets to the heart. And you start to get that pain in your, in your arm and your neck, your back, uh, your, back your throat, and your jaw. Your chest feels tight. And eventually, what happens? You have a heart attack. And that's all because of the restricted flow of blood. And so I want to ask you, do you want to have a spiritual heart attack? Do you want your relationship with God to suffer? Do you want your effectiveness as a Christian to be like the water pressure in my house? And if yes, if the answer is yes, then do what the Israelites did in Judges. Just keep following through in little compromise after little compromise. Notice it's not even these massive sins, at least at this point. It's just these small compromises that eventually accumulate. But if no, if your answer is no, then I encourage you to search your life right now and to get the compromise out of your life. And so maybe there's something that you're secretly holding on to, or maybe there's some hatred that you're allowing to stay in your heart, in your life, or maybe there's something that you're just refusing to do for God, that God's calling you to do. As I said before, maybe it's that lack of time in the Bible. that You're like, I don't have time, I don't understand it. Listen, For some, maybe it's church attendance. Because if you miss and miss and miss getting here and and studying the Word of God as a church family, you're going to be forming those micro-cracks spiritually. They will accumulate. And so I want to close with one last thought to end on a more positive note. At the very beginning of chapter 1, Israel asks God, Who shall go first? And God tells them that Judah is the one to go first. 
Now, there was the tribe of Judah that, that went first and didn't listen to God. But that phrase right there is also just full of symbolism that we can take out. Because not only does Judah go first to battle, but in the years later, King David would come out of the line of Judah. And then eventually, years after that, a baby would be born who would also come from the line of Judah. And his name is Jesus. And in Revelation 5, 5, Jesus is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And so he came and he died for us. And he rose again. And so now all who believe in him are saved and forgiven and made right before God through him. And so uh, first thing, church, listen, everything that I've just said makes no difference unless you've given your life to Jesus Christ. And so I want to encourage you, go to the Lion of Judah because he's the one that can give you victory over sin. And he's the one that can give you the strength to not compromise. And he can help you along the way. And he is the one that can save you. So the Bible says that to call out to him and make him the Lord of your life. And so I encourage anyone in here that's never done that to do that today, to do that now. But second, some of you, most of you here that are in church have already done that. You've made him your Lord at some point in the past, but maybe some of you aren't acting like it. And I, wanna, I want you to remember, so we're not ending just on a negative note, you're leaving feeling, oh, I am full of compromise. But I want you to remember that there is no sin that's too great for Jesus Christ. And so as the hymn goes, it wasn't, the author didn't, didn't write, Jesus paid most of it, most of it to all I owe. No, it says, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. And so maybe you walked in the church and you had this backpack full of sin that you've accumulated from just the week. Maybe just the weekend. And if so, take it and give it to Jesus Christ. Give him your life. Give him your sin because only in him can we find victory. I'm going to go ahead and, and pray. Father, help.